So welcome everybody to the Synapse podcast. I'm Synapse CEO, Lauren Prager, and I am coming to you today live from Meta Center Global Week. This is our inaugural event celebrating and bringing together business, tech, and innovation leaders from all across Florida and around the world. And I'm very excited to be here today with Elliot Danner with Google Cloud, who is part of the team based here in Florida and is going to be speaking uh, very shortly on our main stage and sharing his experiences and insights with uh, with us about the future of cloud computing, the future of edge computing, and what we should all be anticipating and working on in our businesses. So thank you for Fantastic. taking a couple of moments out, Elliot, to be a part of this. Happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great this to have like you. This looks like a great event that you've got going on. Well, thank you. It's our very first one. So I know you just got here. And for those people who aren't fortunate enough to be with with us in Orlando, maybe share a little bit about what you're experiencing and seeing. Yeah, so a couple things. I had an opportunity to go down to our booth. I had an opportunity to connect with some folks on my team who were working the booth, and we we noticed we've noticed a few things about this. First of all, um, extremely high quality attendees, uh, folks who clearly understand sort of where the landscape of technology is today. And what's interesting to me, and we were talking a little bit about this earlier, what's interesting to me is that the questions. You know, I, I can usually tell where somebody is in their tech journey based on the kinds of questions that they ask. At the very beginning, they ask what I would call sort of broad, informative questions. Tell me about AI. Tell me how Gen AI is going to matter. Tell me about data analysis, anything along those lines. As they become more mature, they seem they, they develop their own perspective on it. And they start to ask questions that help to inform that perspective. And it creates really high quality conversations. Mm -hmm. What struck me, I was down at the booth for about 30 minutes. Every conversation I heard was what I would call a high quality conversation. And the two people that I had an opportunity to speak to, tech leaders, clear idea of sort of where particularly generative AI is going to fit and already experimenting and asking questions about how things can improve. And that's a, that's a much more evolved conversation, candidly, than we often have. That's great to hear. And I think, you know, a year ago, it's hard to imagine now it's October 2023. So it's, we have to kind of put ourselves back a year ago when Gen AI was not a, a term that most of, you know, the community knew, most civilians knew somewhere mm -hmm. in, you know, Silicon Valley, people were talking about Gen AI. And, um, but now it is, it's omnipresent. Everyone yep. uses it in some way. So it's fascinating to hear how the conversations have evolved. So Maybe talk a little bit about some of the, the questions and the content that you are seeing and hearing from people who are engaging with you. Yeah. So so actually, uh, and I often answer questions by saying, let me tell you the beginning of the story. Um, so I've, I've been with Google almost 12 years now. Um, and in that 12 years, AI has been an active topic of conversation within the company since I joined. Um, and even going back seven or eight years ago, we were meeting with customers and talking about how AI was going to impact their business. And there was a whole period there where we just kind of got the, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, that's, yeah, that's your view, but I'm focused on, you know, lift and shift of my IBM mainframe, something along those lines. Um, what I think has happened here recently is because of the splash that Gen AI has made from a almost human interface perspective, all of a sudden the, the kinds of questions that we're getting and the way that folks are thinking about their business has changed completely. And it's not just changed the way they think about AI fitting in their business, it's actually changed the way they're thinking about cloud computing in general and how they're thinking about legacy applications, legacy hardware that they have, and how they're thinking about how to deploy their workforce. 
and whether or not they need to rethink the deployment of their workforce in order to leverage cloud, in order to leverage AI. It's really interesting that those are the kinds of conversations that we're having. The other thing that's fascinating to me, Lauren, is we are, I'm talking to more boards of directors than I have in years. And individuals maybe without a lot of technical background understand that this is something impactful, understand that they need to ask questions around it. Um, we're getting fascinating questions about legality, about responsibility, about controls. All of these are things where I, I personally feel Google Cloud excels probably further than everyone because of the history we've got in it. But it's interesting to me, you know, I, ordinarily I wouldn't have an access control list, an ACL conversation with a senior non-technical executive. That's an active conversation that I had as recently as yesterday. Um, so what's happened in some ways here is that tech has become more of a topic of conversation for business leaders than it has been in the past. I think in the past, business leaders focused on sort of this is the strategy, this is, you know, this is the way that we're operating this business. And tech was left to candidly people like me. Um, all of a sudden, business leaders are asking detailed technical questions. That's super interesting. That's probably the first time in my career that I've seen that that sort of engagement. So are you finding that there is a communication internally between people who tended to be mostly focused on the business side and maybe sometimes they left the techies over there in their offices to deal with that? Is there more of an integrated discussion actually happening amongst these companies and these partners? A hundred percent. So so let me tell you about a conversation I had the other day with a, we won't name them, but a Fortune 50. Okay. Business. Um, we ended up in a conversation that involved the CTO, the CIO, the COO, and the CEO. That might have happened three times before that in my career that we would have a meeting about business strategy and how tech was going to inform business strategy. This is not a business whose core mission is technical. This is a, a manufacturing business. Um, it was fascinating to me that we were having a basically a conversation with every part of the business operation around how technology was going to enable business outcomes. Ordinarily, that's not the conversation that we would have. Ordinarily, the conversation that we would have would be someone in a, you know, in a senior technical role coming to us and saying, well, you know, here, here are the four mission points that we have. I'm executing on these four. All of a sudden, we're having a conversation about how everybody's going to execute on a strategic outcome and how technology is going to drive that. Yeah, things are things are much more integrated now, and in ways that awesome. we, in many ways, yes. But I think for the non-technical community, that can be very overwhelming, and things are moving so yeah. quickly to keep on top of that. Especially when you are moving the equivalent of you know a giant ship, um, you cannot always be as agile as a startup. So mm -hmm. how do you navigate that dynamic? And for those listening who are chief innovation officers, chief technology officers you know, and they're trying to wrap their arms around all of this. What are some of the best practices or maybe even pitfalls that you've seen as companies are navigating this new territory? So years ago, a friend of mine who's an attorney, I, I asked her what sort of made her successful. She's been quite successful in the corporate law world. And she said, I've established a shared vernacular with everybody that I work with. Mm. This actually applies very much to technology. So if you think about it, one of the things that I think makes tech inaccessible, and this is actually this is true for legal things, it's true for every part of a business, right? But, but particularly true for tech, is that terminology is not universally understood. And consequently, you end up with sort of one or two people who act as translators. They translate one sort of one side of the tables 
conversation, they turn to the technical side of the table and say, it means this. And technical side of the table says this, you turn back and it, yes, that's what they said. Um, establishing a shared vernacular is absolutely key. And so when I look at kind of where I've seen success, successful integrations of the business with the technical side, successful, what I would call business transformation efforts, um, successful turnarounds, candidly, um, is a case where everybody has a shared vernacular. Everyone can talk about, and it doesn't even need to be perfectly technically accurate, but everyone can talk about their move to the cloud as a move to containerization and a move to microservices. And everybody can explain what that means. And they've all got kind of a shared concept of it. That seems to make a huge difference in terms of the success of initiatives like that. Where I see failures, candidly, is where you have parts of the business that are using one language to describe an outcome and other parts of the business using a different language and everyone just kind of going, yeah, yeah, but they actually understand. It turns out if you assume people understand, they probably don't. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's I think that's a lot of I think that's a lot of what drives for success. The other thing that I would say is, you know, and this this kind of dates back to my, my pre-Google experience in the public sector. Having a mission for an organization that everybody understands is critical. And the number of organizations that I have an opportunity to speak with, and I say, you know, this actually frequently is a test that I kind of use in the back of my head to see how successful a transformation effort is going to be. If I ask everyone, you know, if I ask the next 10 people in that business what their mission is, if I get 10 different answers, the chances of a transformation effort being successful feel pretty low to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, but if I ask and everyone says basically the same thing, it's like, okay, this is an organization that's got it together and has got a plan. So it's a shared vernacular, mm -hmm. a common mission, and then not falling victim to, oh yeah, but they understand. It's so interesting to see how this really does transcend just a technological need, but you can't really build a successful business unless everybody knows the proverbial why, they understand where they're going, they understand what the metrics are for success, and how much that's just a fundamental for businesses at any size or scale. And so hearing that, and yep. then you layer on the complexities of emerging technologies, things moving so, so quickly, it's no wonder that businesses feel like deers kind of in the headlights as they're trying to figure out how do you navigate the legalities, the ethics, um, and the integration of things like Gen AI and cloud computing and all of these layers. So it's totally, it totally makes sense. Just basic business fundamentals to start. But you know what? So often the fundamentals are the things that get forgotten. Yeah, it's true. You know, across almost 20 years of doing this, the the fundamentals are the things that everyone, there's, there's a tendency to assume that the fundamentals are there. You have to actually inspect that a little bit. And, and, you know, going back to like what has worked and what hasn't, organizations that assume that the fundamentals are there, that sort of assume that they've got a plan, but haven't inspected it recently, often find out that they don't. Okay, so let's let's take that as um, an assumption in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So you've met with a business, they clearly understand who they are, where they're going, and their why. Mm -hmm. And now they're layering on what they're doing to emerge through this new technology and embrace this new technology. I think what you started with about companies asking questions and being willing to experiment Absolutely. is really key. So how do you do that? Whether, again, you're a five-person startup or a 500 or 5,000-person enterprise, letting in a new technology can seem overwhelming, scary, make you vulnerable. And so how do you create a sandbox maybe so that you can actually test some of these assumptions or propositions and not risk your entire business, but yeah. actually figure out what's working and what might not work for you. So it's it's a particularly relevant question uh, now that we're sort of in this Gen AI moment. 
right? Because one of the things that we've seen very publicly is organizations testing Gen AI and having candidly bad outcomes. So a couple things that have worked consistently with almost any technology that I've experienced, but particularly with Gen AI. The first thing is that we have to get everyone on the same page. Going back to that shared vernacular, it's not just that, it's a shared common skill set. Right? Talk a little bit about what unpack that, please. Yeah. So making sure that folks have some basic level of training. Training in. Training in whatever the technology they're going to work okay. with. And this, this is as true for VMs as it is for new fancy Gen AI. Got it. But it's true for everything. You've got to provide some foundation of training. You have to have an organizational set of policies. Everything we build will conform to this security model. Everything that we build will run through this testing. Anything like that. Where, where I've seen mistakes happen is where they go, okay, everyone's trained. Now go experiment. Mm. Frequently doesn't work out very well, right? So you want to have kind of a, a shared set of, you might even call it guardrails around experimentation. And then I believe that we want to encourage folks to experiment incrementally. One of the problems that I've seen in tech, and again, this is not just true of generative AI, but generative AI has been in the news a lot with, as I mentioned, negative outcomes. Um, what has been sort of consistently true is that organizations that attempt to experiment with the end result hmm. are often not successful or take a very, very, very long time to get there. It's usually more effective to do iterative experiments, iterative exploration of the technology, and be willing to fail very quickly. I've also seen organizations, and it sounds like really conventional wisdom, but across my career, it's been absolutely true that organizations have sometimes a cultural, a cultural aversion to anything that looks like a failure. That's mm, true. They like to say that they're open to failing fast, but in reality, if you can't figure out how to make it work on your PNL or your ROI, you know, there's there's an aversion to that. Nobody wants to write their performance review at the end of the year and say failed at nine out of ten. Right, things like it's it. true. Right. So we we have to destigmatize failure. Yeah. We have to destigmatize failure in tech. We have to destigmatize failure in business. Candidly, I think. Um, Specific to tech, you want to make sure that the areas that folks can fail are low risk areas, sure. right? So we always want to use test data. You know, we don't want to we don't want to test use cases that have sort of high negative outcome risk, in my opinion. So one of the big things that I do in my role is have conversations with organizations that want to integrate some new technology. Lately, it's a lot of Gen AI, but it's been Kubernetes. It's been uh, you know, high, high performance computing, grid computing. It's been a bunch of things over the years. One of the things that I always say is we have to accept that as part of experimentation, things won't work. You need to not only be willing not to punish things that don't work out, provided the right guardrails are there. I mean, if people do truly ridiculous things, then just had somebody walk in. That's okay. That's, that's real life. Right. And also real life when you're recording live at an event. Yeah, no. Um, so you, you have to sort of have the right rules around experimentation. You have to be ready to not punish anybody who fails. Yeah. But you also have to be ready to pick things that are actually genuinely working. Not the things that it feels like should work, but the things that you can actually prove are working. I've seen that happen. I've seen organizations go, well, it seems like this should work, so we're going to keep doing it. And it rarely actually works out. What yeah. usually works out is going back and saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. If we look at this empirically, if we take our emotions out of it, and emotions are a huge thing in tech, if we take our emotions out of it, what is actually working, what is actually not working, 
let's double down on the things that are working. But don't you have to have a really clear definition of what's of, of the outcome to some degree to know what's working? Every single time we start a project, I, I you know, we do a lot of executive kickoffs. I say we are going to get together in this room and we're going to write a very short paragraph. The beginning of the paragraph is what we are trying to do. And from there, we're just going to write out what the objective of whatever this is. This is a data center migration. We are trying to migrate from the data center. For reason, because of, by this deadline. But I always, anytime we do this, I say, we're, we're just going to write this all together. We're all going to say, this is the thing that we agreed on at the beginning. Right. Because when things go off the rails, when, you know, when people are misunderstanding, when new people on board to the project, vendors change, partners change, whatever the situation is, it's really helpful to be able to go back and say, you know, on June 1st, we said this is what we're trying to do. Let's go back to what we said we were trying to do and candidly evaluate where we are against it right now. Yeah. It works exceptionally well. The number of people who've told me that they have never had anybody do that is astronomical. I mean, I, it happens almost every time we do an executive kickoff. So we're going to write the, what are we trying to do statement? And I had CEO of a, a big retailer said to me, you know, I've been doing, he said, I've been doing this 30 years. I think he said, no one's ever started there. And I said, well, but isn't that the core? Like, isn't that actually where we're supposed to be starting? If we leap into it now without kind of a, we just leap into it without a sense of what outcome we're trying to drive and what we're trying to accomplish, it turns out it doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? It, we, we end up with scope creep. Yeah, absolutely. And you never know if you've actually accomplished your mission. Um, we talk a lot about activity is not accomplishment, no. but you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish in order to make sure the activity is directed. I mean, this is just it, kind of basic. It's it's, so fundamental, but we yeah. forget it. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you, you know, everyone can kind of say, yeah, yeah, that makes good intellectual sense. But I challenge you to look back and I have to do this to myself all the time to look back and say, am I actually doing the thing that is going to lead to the outcome that I said I was 100%. driving for? The number of times that I've done that, you know, and, and look back and said, well, actually, I'm kind of off track here. Yeah. This is not leading to the outcomes that I want. I got to change, you know, I got to change my behavior around it. I got to change my approach. So these are the business fundamentals that really transcend any particular technology. They apply across industry, technology, community, and the, that's the world in which Synapse plays is bringing people together from lots of different mm -hmm. sectors, lots of different um, uh, backgrounds. So let's talk a little bit about some of the trends that you are helping these companies to navigate and more specifics. Obviously, we've dropped yeah. Gen AI tons yeah, and yeah, tons. Yeah. So, you know, talk, if you would, some more about what you're seeing and as you are providing guidance to CTOs and CEOs, et cetera, where, what are some of the things that you're saying, you guys, it's time to start integrating these things as well into your business planning and execution? So, you know, at Google, we say that there have been three eras of cloud. And I really agree with this. It's not just something that I'm sort of told to say. I really agree that we started with sort of the VM era of cloud, right? And those of us who were around then remember when we were going to take all the servers and we were going to get them down to one rack and it was all going to be virtual machines. Um, and then we got into the infrastructure era of cloud, which I affectionately referred to as the era of data centers you don't visit, <laughs> right? So it was all the same stuff that we had on-prem, we just, it was just in a building. We didn't really have the address and we didn't go visit it, right. Right? kind of the infrastructure of cloud. Now we're kind of in the transformational era of cloud. It's by far the most exciting time in the, in the 12 years I've been doing this in Google Cloud. It's by far the most exciting time. So where kind of, what trends are we seeing? Well, we're seeing a couple things. Um, first, obviously, is artificial intelligence. But underpinning, only because it's sort of the, the buzzword or buzzword's probably not a fair way to say it. It is kind of the focus of the moment for folks. Underpinning that, though, is an extremely strong data strategy. 
underpinning an extremely strong data strategy is actually knowing where the heck all of your data is and having moved it to places where it can be modernized and, and utilized, right? So the big trend that we're seeing actually are conversations about folks getting out of legacy applications, mm -hmm. getting out of legacy hardware, the number of folks who are still running large mainframe systems are still running, someone approached me the other day about DEC hardware, it's, it's uh, 25 years old, wow. running core part of their business, okay. it's a Fortune 500 company. Um, the number of folks who are sort of in that mode, getting things out of that into a usable state, evolving their data analytics world and their data warehousing world, and then leveraging AI on top of it, that's kind of the core trend that we're seeing right now. What's interesting to me is that the conversation is no longer starting at that base level, let's get out of the data center, let's get out of the mainframe, whatever it is. All of a sudden we're driving conversations from the top. We're starting with AI. What's super interesting is that we can say, yeah, absolutely start with AI, but we have to build you a data strategy first. We have to help you get things into a usable state. There's a huge amount of promise here, but there's work to be done. And I often tell people there's no magic, right? It's every, my entire career in tech, there's always something people are describing as magic. What has been universally true is that there is no magic. There is only hard work and difficult decisions. The good news is if we do the hard work and we make the difficult decisions, the outcomes can be magic but there's nothing on top, there's, there's no magic at the beginning. Yeah, sometimes we forget that it really is the people-human element to drive all of this. You talked earlier about taking the emotion out of decisions, mm -hmm. but these are big and many cases expensive decisions. Sure. And for the startups that are in the world, they're trying to decide what their pathway will be. So again, big emotional decisions. So having partners and guidelines to create some sort of really data-driven and, and focused approach is really, really critical for, for a founder or for an executive leader at any stage of that. And finding Absolutely. ways to take that emotion out and really be with a dispassionate advisor or guide is essential. I guess that's kind of the role that a lot of people in the community play. Finding that partner really does make a difference. So I'll tell you something that I think is really interesting and I'm really happy to see. Lately, we have seen more and more folks who are participating in what I would call peer groups, other CIOs, other CEOs, other founders, having sort of genuine conversations about what's working and what's not working. Yeah. There was sort of an era here, and I think the pandemic probably, the pandemic had an impact on this for sure. There was sort of an era of like, I don't want to share what I'm doing because that's my competitive advantage. But the reality is, your approach to your data strategy is unlikely to be your true competitive advantage. It's a business advantage for sure, but I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, an advantage against somebody else. There's been a lot more sort of sharing and I would say peer, peer feedback opportunities than I've ever seen before. And I think the pandemic really helped with that because I think you know, we were sitting at home. I refer to it as the at-home camping trip because uh, it, it felt a little bit like building like a like a pillow fort in your your living room when you were a kid. It just kind of had that feeling to me. I don't know, but uh, you know, we're, so we're at home during the global uh, coronavirus camping trip, and I think a lot of folks took that as an opportunity to reach out to peers yeah. in the industry and ask vulnerable questions. Because the first question, of course, was how do we do this? We just sent everybody home. What are you doing that's working? What are you doing that's not that's working? Right. It was a very vulnerable question. I think that that actually encouraged both business leaders and tech leaders to start asking each other genuinely vulnerable questions. You know, I'm good friends with peers of mine at, at Brand A and Brand M and, and other large tech companies in similar roles. And we have very, very candid conversations about what we're seeing in the market, about what our customers are doing, about what our organizations are doing. We're having those conversations 
we we have we never had those before. I think that that's, was a pure feature of the pandemic. I think that's fascinating and so validating. I think especially you know sometimes society can feel really disconnected and divided, and a lot of times we look at technology and the debate right now is about how it has created silos mm-hmm. or loneliness or vulnerability in that in a negative sort of a way because of the um, the way that we engage with technology as individuals, not as a collective. And so it actually gives me like a little ray of sunshine to know that even amongst the leaders that are building these platforms, even amongst our our tech and business leaders, there is this sense of collaboration, camaraderie, maybe even that's allowing us to maybe make it a better, better integration, better future, better use cases for society. I mean, maybe I'm being a little too optimistic, but I think that's a really, really special accomplishment. We were talking earlier about sort of my experience at the Booth. Here's something that was super interesting. Um, there were three people there, all of whom had senior titles from three different companies, having one conversation with one of my engineers. Here's what's interesting to me about that. I distinctly remember events where people would actually take someone off to the side because they didn't want their competitor to hear the questions that they had. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's a lot more vulnerability in this. There's a lot more kind of willingness to learn from each other. And I think that that's all goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. This has been really fascinating to get a chance to understand from your perspective. You know, you're based in Florida Mm -hmm. and have a chance to work with a lot of different types of companies um, all over. And like you said, you've been part of this, the the Google Cloud um, community for a really long time. So it's really fascinating to kind of get the synthesis of your experiences and impressions and the trends moving forward. So, you know, and, and I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have um, in just a couple of hours on the main stage here where you're bringing together different partners that are leveraging tech and innovation and this cutting edge um, computing technology for their businesses, everything from construction to entertainment and theme parks to even virtual and augmented reality for lots of different use cases. So, you and know, that's a great example. Like the diversity of that panel. That's right. Is, and, and yet the relevancy of the things we're going to talk about to everybody on that panel is a great example of sort of collaboration and, and being a little bit fearless with, with what you talk about. Yeah. So I want to end with a couple of questions sure. that I always like to, to share with our guests and give them a chance to kind of, um, uh, provide a little bit of insight. So um, how do you define innovation? <laughs> oh, I, I, okay. I, I gave him a moment oh, to no, pause. So I, I get, love this. <laughs> I get asked this question. I get asked this question all the time. And there's a bunch of cliche answers, but I actually, I have given the same answer for years. Innovation is not about doing anything new per se. It is about reframing the question. So when I think about innovation, I think about organizations and people who have fundamentally reframed the question. They've turned whatever the logical assumptions are on their head, they've reframed it, and they've found a framing that they can answer. And then they go and execute on the answer that they came up with. That to me is innovation. It's not necessarily doing something new. It's not, it's not, you know, breakthrough technology. It's not any of that. It's reframing the question, finding an answer that we can execute on and doing that. I love that. That is a great answer. Um, I always like to ask, who's an innovator, dead or alive, who has inspired you or does inspire you? Tell us a little bit about who that person is. Oh, I, I have two. Um, okay. So Alan Turing. Um, Alan Turing is absolutely one. And and if you, the, the history of breaking the enigma is a fascinating thing to read about. In order to break the enigma, he had to do exactly what I just described reframe the whole question. 
it's a it's computationally nearly impossible task given what was free, given what was available at the time. I mean, this man built mechanical computers to do this. If you ever have a chance, Bletchley Park is an amazing place to visit because you can see these things. I mean, they, they literally drip oil. I mean, it's a, it is a mechanical computer dripping machine oil. In order to solve these problems, Alan Turing and that team had to turn the whole question around, reframe the whole question. What can we answer? We can answer that some letters are common in, in languages, right? Okay, we know that answer. Great, let's figure out how we decode common letters. Fantastic, let's build from there. It's really, really interesting to see that. So he's, he's kind of, every time I talk about reframing the question, Alan Turing, absolutely. The other one is Amelia Earhart. Um, and not just because lover of aviation and all things flying, um, but because that's another person who fundamentally turned the question on its head. You know, why not? Yeah. Basically. Um, so yeah, those are those are probably the that. two easy ones for me. Um, last question. Yeah. At Synapse, we are here to help people connect and catalyze innovation and ensure to help them find what they need sure. and share what they have. So what would you like to share with our listeners to help them both find what they need and maybe share what you have? Yeah, I mean, Lauren, the best part of my job is that people come to me with fascinating problems and I get to talk to them about their problems, help them reframe them and see if we can't come up with a solution. I'm not gonna lie, we haven't solved every one of them. <laughs> um, but that is by far the best part of my job. Um, and so I, look, I'd love to connect with anyone who wants to just chat about a business problem that they have, um, chat about a technical problem that they have, just see if there's an opportunity to do something interesting. By far, by far my favorite part of every single day, I got to do this on the train coming up here. By far my favorite part of every day is when I get a call and somebody goes, I have this problem. I think you probably don't know the answer, but I wanna talk it through with you. I had a fantastic hour long conversation with someone on the train on the way up about what is a core business problem that might have a technical solution to it. It might also have a people solution to it, but it's fascinating to have a conversation about a problem and just sort of ideate around it. Okay. Well, you're the guy. So yeah. we'll make sure to tag you in the show notes. And of course your team with Google cloud. Thank you for joining us on the Synapse podcast. Thank you for joining us at Meta Center Global Week. We really appreciate you taking some time out of the of busy day to share your thoughts with us. Um, and it's a pleasure to have you on the Synapse podcast. Keep Thank on you. being part of the reason that innovation lives here. <laughs> Thank you for hosting a great event. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. Awesome.